Jeremy Rifkin, an economic, um, an American economic and social theorist who has written a lot of books about the impact that things like technology and genetic engineering are having in changing our world and changing science, wrote a book in 1983 called Algony, in which he said this. We no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behaviour conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It's our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behaviour, he goes on to say, for we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. In expressing this very modern mindset, he sums up, I think, one of the assaults on faith that's prevalent in our culture. A belief that, especially among more militant atheists, such as Richard Dawkins, that science has displaced God. Elsewhere, the authority of the Bible is often denigrated in the media, often on very flimsy grounds, and Christian moral stances are often downplayed or willfully misrepresented. One article in the Independent newspaper a few years ago used Old Testament law as a basis for why New Testament ethics are wrong or not adhered to. In other words, we don't follow the Bible because we don't follow the whole Levitical law. Totally wrong way round argument, but it actually surfaces quite often. Novels such as The Da Vinci Code often become hits, not just for being popular if appallingly written thrillers, but because any excuse to disbelieve the Bible goes down a bomb. Politicians and professionals who hold Christian faith or standards or wear Christian symbols are often attacked for it. And there's a sense quite often of faith being driven into something merely private, out of the public arena. But is this always just because people think that these days we're too grown up to need it anymore? One article defined grounds of objection to faith as falling into three categories. Intellectual, can't believe it on rational grounds. Emotional, don't want to. Or volitional, not bothered about its importance. Are we a culture that's lost its sense of sin? Maybe we are. More than the rational, it often seems to be the emotional and the volitional that define a lot of grounds for people's resistance to faith. One writer, Thomas Nagel, sums up the emotional position when he says this, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people that I know are religious believers. He goes on to say, it's not just that I don't believe in God and I hope I'm right. 
I hope there's no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He goes on to admit that this is rooted in a problem with what he calls cosmic authority. And so rebellion against God is often rooted not in rational fact, but in negative emotion. In the face of all this, frustration is very natural. It's not always easy to judge what strands to make. The Psalms don't answer all of these questions for us. But through the many struggles that the Psalm writers describe, what these very beautiful and powerful poems offer is a strike to the heart with a powerful sense of restored balance. As devotional poems, prayers and hymns, the Psalms often take us on a painfully honest journey through suffering and despair, but out again on the other side with faith and trusting God restored. One commentator says that what the Psalms do is allow the expression of darkest human emotion to be pathways to God. The Psalms ring true for us psychologically because they are so honest and yet, in the end, so filled with restored faith. Martin Luther and John Calvin both commented that in the Psalms we have a mirror into our own hearts and they're right because what the Psalms offer us is a chance through the emotional resonance of poetry to look our own spiritual doubts and fears in the face and walk through them. And in the face of the aggressive turning away from God that Psalm 2 describes and that we've considered, this psalm begins with a simple question, why? But it's not a despairing why. It's simply a why bother, a rhetorical why. Because this is a psalm that knows how the story ultimately ends. And it's a psalm that knows that the fulfilment of Christ's rule is, in the end, whatever a secular culture may think, inevitable. Whereas Psalm 1 then had a very individual focus, Psalm 2 shifts its gears to a corporate and national level with its pictures of kings and nations rising up against God. But the assurance given to those who trust in God and the ultimate failure of those who choose not to is the same. It's identified elsewhere in Scripture as a psalm of David, and so it may refer in part then to Israel's political enemies at that time. But it's also often thought to be a coronation psalm, sung at the enthroning of Israelite kings. And in its messianic promise, halfway through, it therefore foreshadows the greatest king of all, Jesus. From the Israelite kings who fought a battle with sin and idolatry that some of them won, but many of them lost, to the king who conquers sin and death for us. And so our psalm asks its rhetorical question, as to why nations and people plot in vain against God. In denouncing such things as vain, it's doing two things. 
Firstly, in the face of something that can seem overwhelming, it's establishing an eternal perspective. And it's also using the word vain in perhaps a deeper sense than we're used to, to express in the original language that the culture, the life that pitches itself in opposition to God's truth is, in the end, something empty, formless, without meaning. Verses 2 and 3 then give us a sense of a world striving to cast off God's fetters. And we've thought a bit about what that can look like in our culture and perhaps it can also be a belief that how the New Testament asks us to live is repressive when actually it's about protecting us, about helping us to flourish as people in God's presence in Christian community and in the world. And while it's very easy to look at the world around us with all of this when we say casting off God's fetters, what about us when God's word challenges us with a choice about honesty or integrity or kindness or a choice based on following God or not? or doing something that God is challenging us to do, or not. Or when we need to forgive someone, or when we need to ask someone else's forgiveness. In that moment of choosing, we too so often have this wrong perspective, don't we? And so, before we look at the rest of this psalm together, with its wonderful promises, why don't we make this the moment when we have a time of confession together as Rosie comes back up for a moment to lead us. We know that we too are guilty of casting off God's fetters, of crossing safe boundaries that the Lord has left for us. Um, So we're going to take a time, moment to reflect on what Jason has been speaking about in the words of the psalm. So we say together with the words in yellow. Mighty and most merciful Father, we have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things that we ought not to have done. But there is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen.
if you prayed that knowing and confessing your sins, scripture promises that he is there to wipe away all our trespasses. So now I'm going to pass back to Jason for the second half of the sermon. God is not phased by any of man's rebellion or failure. We're told here in this psalm that he laughs and then he shows anger. As far back as the aftermath of the flood, he's noted that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God knows full well what we're like left to ourselves. The message version puts these verses like this. Heaven-throned God breaks out laughing. At first, he's amused at their presumption. Then he gets good and angry. Furiously, he shuts them up. While our falling and our turning away grieves and angers him, God never loses compassion. And in verse 6, he ends man's arguments against him with a redemptive promise, the promise of his Messiah. And the promise of the Messiah is not only a promise that there's someone greater than any human ruler or party leader or president or culture, but a promise that God wants to redeem all our rebellion and failure and that his judgment is only ever a last resort. And we know that this can't be just a human king that's spoken about here because they were so prone to failure This is the king who has redeemed all human rebellion and failure for those who trust in him and who will return to rule. In other Psalms, God shows us again that he laughs at evildoers and invites us to share his laughter at the ultimate overthrow of wickedness. And in doing this, he wants us to share his eternal perspective, to be confident that we're on the right side, that the one who has died for us and risen again makes all things right in the end. And of course, this doesn't absolve us from also sharing God's anger and grief at all that's wrong and all that opposes him, to see what's right and wrong through the light of his word, to honour the premium that the Bible places on justice and care in our attitudes, our actions, our political choices, in other areas of our lives. And rightly, Christians are often at the forefront of social action and change. But it is a promise given to us that this world, with all its struggles, isn't all there is, and that God will renew it in the end. And so this hinge point takes us from the old covenant forward to the new covenant in Christ. His kingdom began to come when he stood on earth before and ultimately the church was birthed and it will be fulfilled when it comes again. And having looked at the earthly powers that conspire against God, the psalmist prophesies that they are merely Christ's possession, that he will dash them in pieces like pottery. And in verses 7 to 9, it's Christ's voice that we hear. 
I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like pottery. The second person of the Holy Trinity after which our church is named has become for us the Son who for his obedience and victory on the cross is exalted again. But this King who's going to return to rule is still Jesus, still our Good Shepherd. Shepherds in those days had a staff and an iron club with which they defended the sheep in their care from robbers and from wild animals. And so this rule of Christ isn't despotic. His rod of iron is still pastoral, still the rod of a shepherd. And while this is unmistakably a judgment, it's one that's the ultimate striking down of human and satanic power, error and evil that has threatened his sheep. And so again, in praying this psalm, where will our nation stand in the end? In its laws, in its convictions, is it pitching towards God's truth or away from it? Let's pray for our political leaders, shall we? And pray that our Christian leaders in this land would have a strong voice. Mount Zion then is a hill in Jerusalem and in the Old Testament it's often seen as a refuge for those who stay true to God, a holy place. Throughout the Old Testament it becomes figurative of the temple, God's people. And in the New Testament this meaning expands to include Christ and all who come to him. And then finally in Revelation Christ stands on Zion again before heaven and earth are finally renewed. First Peter quotes Isaiah to describe Jesus as the cornerstone of Zion. See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and he who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're given a contrast between the burning mountain of Sinai, the place of the law that ultimately only sets us up to fail, where only Moses could approach because God's presence was terrifying and deadly to Zion. And it says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's us. That's our citizenship. That's where we're going. The whole of the Bible has pointed firstly to Christ coming to redeem us and then his return when we stand with him and in him for eternity. And so as a tree was the symbol of eternal stability in Psalm 1, so here it's this holy mountain. And so the reassurance that Psalm 2 brings us to in the end is this. That however nations rage, Christ, whose kingdom has become to come, will rule.
That is a fact. It's not negotiable. And that doesn't mean, of course, that we aren't in respectful dialogue with other faiths and philosophies, but it does mean that in the end, Christ is king. No one else, nothing else. And so, does that fill us with peace, joy, reassurance? Or does it challenge us to make a decision, a choice about who Jesus is to us? Where's our citizenship in the end? Is it just in a secular culture with its fashions and peer pressures that come and go? Or is it ultimately in Zion, the place of eternal truth and hope? And so in the light of all this, our psalm goes on to give us the only logical response that there is. To serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, take refuge in him. Again, the message version puts it like this. Worship God in adoring embrace. Celebrate in trembling awe. Kiss Messiah. Kissing in this context is, of course, a a mark of submission. We remember that when a, a new prime minister is elected in this country, they kiss the monarch's hand in a symbolic fealty. And as we worship in joy and awe, as we strive to walk ever closer with Christ in trust and in surrender, we kiss the sun. And the psalm concludes with this wonderful promise of refuge in Christ. And again, the message version phrases this final line, if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. If tonight you're someone who still isn't sure about Jesus or Christianity, please can I tell you that that's God's promise to you. Jeremy Rifkin said that the kingdom, the power and the glory were now ours. But every time we say the Lord's Prayer together, as we're going to in a moment, we affirm, don't we, the great eternal truth that the kingdom the power and the glory don't belong to us, don't belong to atheist thinkers, don't belong to the secular world, don't belong to moral relativism, don't belong to whatever scientific breakthrough God has allowed us to make. The kingdom, the power and the glory belong as they always have done and always will do to the one true eternal God of Zion who we can kiss in peace, trust, surrender and love because in Christ he has kissed us in forgiveness and in whom we have unshakable eternal refuge.